At the beginning of the 4th century, it's illegal to be a Christian. At the end of the 4th century, it's illegal to be a pagan. And the church now has turned the tables, and uh, the church is now shutting down pagan temples. And not surprisingly, you get a vast influx of people into the church and the growth of what will dominate the medieval period, which is a nominal Christianity. Hey, welcome to the Indo Podcast, the podcast that talks about issues of life and faith with a biblical perspective. My name is Isaac, your host. You know, one of the ways we can best engage culture as Christians is not by just studying culture. You know, I I believe there's huge importance in, you know, you could say exegeting culture, meaning digging out the meaning and purpose of why culture does what it does and so on. But a hugely important task in engaging culture today as Christians is by studying ancient culture, specifically the history of our family, the church. Now, as soon as I mention church history, you know, people may tune out, which is okay, but I urge you not to. See, the church is our family and what the church has been through and done through the ages is immensely important for our growth present. Now, I'm definitely not capable of going through t- church history myself, but, but I did want the best person to talk to us on this. So in doing a bit of research, I found out about Dr. Michael Haken. He's a professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Actually, he recently just wrote the foreword to John Piper's little book about the life of missionary Andrew Fuller, which is pretty cool. Anyways, we're actually going to be doing, you know, two separate two-week series with him. So a total of four episodes. But because this is church history and it's kind of heavy content, we're going to be separating them into two separate two-week series. So we're going to start our new two-week series today where Dr. Haken will address the patristic period. And then next week, we're going to talk about the medieval period, and then we're going to take a break, and then we'll we'll continue the next uh, two later on. But let's get into this first conversation. There are some fascinating events and people that are crucial for us to know about today. Well, I'm excited to begin a new two-week series digging into the topic of church history. Joining me to do much more of the talking uh, than me is Dr. Michael Haken. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Michael is a uh, professor of church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, um, as well as director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. So it's it's great to be chatting with you today uh, about this specific subject. And to our listeners, uh, Dr. Haken has committed to taking us through four time periods, two now and two later, in regards to some of the kind of major moves and, I guess, figures in and through church history, beginning, uh, you know, this week with the patristic era and its heritage looking at years 100 to 700. Um, but before we jump in there, Michael, um, would you just mind quickly telling us a little bit about who kind of you are personally and, and maybe even tell us when church history became a topic of interest for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, I've always loved history. I was born in England, um, and so I had the privilege of growing up in a context where there was a lot of history, uh, I mean, older history around. You could see the visible remains of uh, medieval fortresses and castles and things like that. Mm. Uh, I can't remember a time I really didn't feel passionately about history. Obviously, as a boy, it's directed differently. Uh, the questions <laughs> you're asking, the interests you have are different. Um, but I can't remember, as I said, a time that I didn't passionately love history and really have history as my goal. And so when I was converted um, at the age of 20, uh, it was in some ways logical uh, for the Lord to direct my path into an area that he had already given me these desires, uh, unbeknownst to me, obviously. 
And so uh, providentially, the Lord has uh, been very kind and gracious over the years to give me positions where I can teach history and uh, get paid for what I love. Yeah, no, that's great. And, And how long have you been at the current seminary you teach at now? Um, I started teaching there part-time, adjunct, as uh, 2002, and full-time beginning January 2008. Okay, no, that's great. And just thanks for, for giving that little story. That's awesome. Well, well, let, let's jump in here, Michael. Uh, the, the patristic era and its heritage, and you, you call this Jesus Christ is Lord. So tell us about this. Yeah, the uh, history of the Church uh, begins really with uh, the Book of Acts, um, Depending on how you view things theologically, there would be some, obviously, who argue that the Church stretches back into the Old Testament, and there certainly is a unity to God's people, but uh, something distinctly new uh, takes place in the uh, period following our Lord's uh, death and resurrection, Uh, this body of people that we call the Church. Uh, The first history book written by Luke is the Book of Acts. It records how the Church began to grow uh, from its origins in Jerusalem, uh, pushing out into the neighboring uh, areas of Samaria, uh, Galilee. And then by the end of the time you get to the book of Acts, uh, the church is proclaiming the gospel through the Apostle Paul in, in the heart of the Roman Empire, which mm. is which is uh, Rome. And uh, although Christianity did go beyond the Roman Empire, I mean, we have evidence of Christian missions in uh, areas like uh, the, what we call the Sudan today, Ethiopia, then called the Aksum, Aksum. Um, and uh, the Church also was uh, active in uh, Iran uh, and the Indian subcontinent. It, the main focus of the Church was moving uh, east from Jerusalem, west into the Mediterranean, into the Roman Empire, which really dominated the entire Mediterranean basin. The Roman Empire was, at the time of our Lord's life and ministry and the early church that's described in the Book of Acts, mm. probably encompassed some 70 million people. Okay. Um, stretched from Britain, uh, what is now modern Britain, down to North Africa, from the Straits of Gibraltar, all the way over into what is now the Middle East. Uh, at one point, as far as Babylon. Okay. which would be in southern Iraq. Yeah. So it's a huge, huge area geographically and multicultural. And um, uh, a world of uh, significant poverty, probably mm-hmm. 30 to 40 percent of people were poor, significant slavery, uh, maybe anywhere between 20 to 30, maybe as high as 40 percent slaves. Mm. A uh, very small minority uh, who are what we would call middle class, okay. uh, unlike our culture, which is a very large middle class. Yeah. The middle class in the Roman world would be about 8%. And then a very large, um, a very, well, a very small but each stupendously wealthy upper class, about 2% of the empire. Okay. And um, it's a military dictatorship. Uh, that's significant. And so when the gospel begins to be proclaimed, uh, a lot of the people who first hear the gospel are uh, illiterate, they're poor, mm. uh, they have no political power, There's no, it's not a democracy in any way, shape, or form. Right. And um, one, uh, early, one so- contemporary sociologist named Rodney Stark has estimated that beginning from a few thousand believers around 40 AD, which is, if you do the statistics, it's 
probably around 0.0017% of the population. <laughs> wow. By the year 300, it's over 6 million. Wow. Uh, about 10% of the population. That's a con- Those are conservative estimates. Sure. It may be more. And all of this is done without the means of modern technology. There's no there's no printing press. There's right. no what we're, there's no radio podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's no media, you know, television, et cetera, et cetera. There are no outdoor crusades like we you know we saw in the mid 20th century with people like Billy Graham. Sure. Um, it's uh, Christianity by the 70s is illegal. Okay. And uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, the Roman state uh, persecutes the church, and that really is the situation up until the early 300s. Wow. And so um, uh, the church's uh, message of new life in Christ, of grace and forgiveness, uh, of remarkable lived witness, the morality of the early Christian believers, yeah. and then the the prayer, uh, praying for the salvation of unbelievers, are central factors in the growth of the church, and obviously also the the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, um, and uh, using the Word of God, and usually it would be the, the 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 heard Word of God, because as I said, most of these people are illiterate. Right. Um, significant persecution dominates this period. The church at the very beginning then is a church of martyrs. Mm. Uh, the word martyr itself is a very interesting word. It's the word that Jesus uses in the Greek, in Acts 1, where he says, you shall be my witnesses. And the Greek word there is materes. Interesting. And um, materes means witnesses. Uh, at that point, it doesn't mean our technical word martyr. Right. But by the end of the New Testament period, the word materes, martyrs, had come to mean somebody who bears witness to Christ to the point of death. Interesting, okay. And so the linguistic changes in that word um, are an ind- indication of what's going on yeah. publicly, the, the Church's persecution. Right. Now, wh- Michael, where was the, the hub, I guess, of, of, of Christianity at, the, at this point? Would it be Jerusalem still, or Antioch, or where would the kind <clears> of No, as, as, yeah, as the Church moves out from Jerusalem, uh, it begins to really plant itself deeply in various uh, Gentile areas. Mm. Uh, Alexandria is critical. Right. Um, probably a city of about 300,000, 400,000. Okay. Ephesus is also critical, again, about the same number of people. Okay. And Rome. Right. Rome has a million people. Uh, by the middle of the uh, 100, so about 150 to 170, there's probably somewhere between 70 to 80 house churches. Okay. And each house church would probably have anywhere between 40 to 100 people who would regularly attend it. Wow. Jerusalem becomes does not become a does not remain a prominent center of Christianity, particularly because of two wars: the Jewish War between sixty six and seventy three, mm-hmm. which uh, ends in the destruction of the temple, and yeah. then the the second Jewish War in the one thirties, okay. where after which the Romans basically expel all the Jews. Right. Okay. Uh, from uh, Judea, persecution, as I said, was brutal. Um, Probably the last great persecution was around 300. Okay. Um, between 303 and 312, particularly in the Eastern Roman Empire, mm-hmm. where there were probably thousands of martyrs. Wow. And um, that comes to an end with the the Emperor Constantine. Yes. And uh, Constantine has been a in the history of the Church. Historians have had a 
kind of love-hate relationship with him. Right. Um, and also, our, it's not clear to historians sometimes how to, how to interpret his life. Hmm. He professes faith in Christ, professes to be uh, a believer, mm-hmm. but some of his actions as a politician sometimes leave that much to be desired. But also, the, the changes he introduces are enormously far-reaching. Um, so whether or not he was genuine in his profession of faith, I think is. I think as far as we can tell, I would I would argue he believed that he was a Christian. Mm-hmm. But whatever take we make about Constantine, uh, the changes are enormous. He he weds together church and state, or begins to wed together church and state, right. in a way that is still with us. Um, for instance, uh, the reason why uh, ministers here in Canada uh, have tax breaks right. is because of Constantine's legislation. Interesting. And um, uh, this will change the whole complex, the complexion, rather, of Christianity. At the beginning of the 4th century, the Church has grown to the point, it's about 10% of the Roman Empire. Areas like Upper uh, Lower, uh, Lower Egypt, where Alexandria is, are enormously important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Asia Minor, along the coast, the western coast of Turkey, what is now Turkey, uh, Rome, Carthage in North Africa, major centers of Christianity. Um, at the beginning of the 4th century, it's illegal to be a Christian. At the end of the 4th century, with the the domination of the Church in the, the Roman imperial politics, uh, but the end of the 4th century, it's illegal t- to be a pagan. Hmm. Wow. And the Church now has turned the tables, yeah. and uh, the Church is now shutting down, closing down pagan temples, and not surprisingly, you get a vast influx of people into the Church, yeah. and the growth of what will dominate the medieval period, which is a nominal Christianity. The other main issues in this early period are also the Church is a Church of Martyrs, but also the whole area of the, of the, of the importance of orthodoxy. Hmm. And the Church finds herself battling a variety of heresies, heresy being a commitment to beliefs, that are a denial of fundamental truths of the gospel. Right, okay. Probably the first major heresy the Church fights is what we call Gnosticism, okay. which emerges probably at the end of the New Testament period, uh, denies the goodness of the material realm, denies the resurrection of the body, denies the reality of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, denies mm-hmm. His resurrection. Um, and uh, very interestingly, because it's kind of made a comeback in recent years in uh, kind of New Age thinking, hmm. where the argument is that the spirit, the soul, the inner person is what alone is genuine and real and lasting, and the body is simply um, a shell. Right. And so the early church has to fight that, uh, defending the reality of the Incarnation, mm-hmm. uh, defending the uh, goodness of the material realm, defending the fact that God is a good creator. The second major heresy that the Church fights is Arianism, uh, named after a man named Arius, who probably really didn't have much to do with the eventual propagation of the, the beliefs. Right. And this emerges in the 4th century, um, and it's a denial of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, argues that he is he is a God. Right. And very similar, really, modern modern Jehovah's Witnesses are basically Arians. Yeah. And uh, so the 4th century is an era, is a period dominated by discussions about the Trinity, uh, how do we think about God, who is God, and by the end you have the great uh, the promulgation of what's called the, the historians know it as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, 
generally mm-hmm. speaking, it's simply called the Nicene Creed of 381, right. in which Jesus is described as being one in being with the Father, and the Holy Spirit um, is said to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son, and therefore, obviously, fully God. Fully God, that's correct. Now, so who are some of the kind of heavy-hitter theologians that we should know about that were battling the heresies like Gnosticism and Arianism and so forth? Um, well, Gnosticism, probably the key figure is Irenaeus, uh, I. R-E-N-A-E-U-S. Okay. Um, he died around the year 200. Um, did most of his ministry in what is now southern France, at the town of Lyon. Um, <clears throat> the Romans called it Lugdunum. Um, <laughs> uh, wrote a major work called Against Heresies. Okay. In the uh, 4th century, probably the key figure is Basil of Caesarea, okay. um, who died in 379. And he wrote a great book called On the Holy Spirit, mm. which is um, published in 375, and is a major scriptural defense, a very much scriptural defense of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And then the other great theologian of that period, who is one of the great gifts, I think, of the early Church to the later Church, is Augustine. Yes. Augustine writes a definitive work on the Trinity, which was published in the early 400s. Um, his book, The Confessions, is probably one of the great classics of Christianity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a must-read um, born in 354, he was converted in 386, baptized in 387, and by the middle of the following decade, 395, he was uh, Bishop of Hippo Regius, right. a Roman town on the shores of the Mediterranean in North Africa. And for the next five years was a pastor, preacher, uh, and also author of around two over 200 books. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, just massive literary heritage, and we have most of them, and he... You can't understand the Middle Ages uh, or the Reformation if you don't have some understanding of Augustine's thought. Oh, so that... just a remarkable figure. Yeah. Uh, for good, mostly, but also certain areas where we would disagree with him. Correct, yeah. Um, where um, he would argue, for instance, that there's no salvation outside of the visible Church. Mm. Um, he doesn't link that Church to the Bishop of Rome, but uh, definitely... Um, That'll be an idea that is used at the time of the Reformation to oppose the Reformation right. by the Roman Church. So, But just an enormously important figure, and an enormously attractive figure, too, in many ways. Yes, definitely. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Michael, but I believe that the canon of Scripture as well was sort of finalized in the 4th century. Um, and in that case, until that point, how was sort of the Bible, as we would kind of call it, being used in that period before it was kind of finalized in one canon. Yes, the, the canon, uh, all, well, all of the books are written, as we know, uh, that we call the New Testament, in the first century. Okay. But um, by the, the second century, 90% of those books are recognized as Holy Scripture. Okay. Uh, there are some that are debated. They're known as the Antilegomena, okay. the disputed books. There are seven of them. Okay. Uh, the Book of Hebrews, um, uh, Second Peter. Okay. James, Second, uh, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Oh wow! Okay. And um, generally speaking, those books were initially accepted as canon. Yeah. And then, for a variety of reasons, towards the end of the second century, with the battles with Gnosticism, which denied some of the canonicity of these books, at the end of the second century, you start to find some of these books, these these uh, these disputed books. These are the only ones that are ever disputed, coming into. Uh, being challenged as to being whether or not they're scripture. Right. 
by the fourth century, pretty well the canon has, as we know it, has been recognized. Right. Okay. No, and there are councils in the fourth century that uh, recognize what we call the canon of the New Testament, and so that's one of the other great gifts of the the new of the new te- this patristic era to us is um, the uh, the canon. Yes. Now. Of Holy if we, if we, you know, we had to wrap up this first episode here, but in looking kind of at this patristic time, uh, you've given obviously some great points about some heretical views, about the scripture, about some major uh, kind of theologians that we should recognize today and know about, like specifically, uh, specifically Augustine as well. But what would you say was the one overall? Uh, I don't know if theme is the right word, but something that you could say, you know, when when you talk about the patristic period, this is something that's of uh, of utter importance before we wrap up here. I think probably um, the most significant thing of the early church is, is the uh, Trinity. Mm. Uh, the early church thought long and hard about who is God. Yeah. And uh, the hammering out of the doctrine of the Trinity is just a tremendous gift. And we as evangelicals have really, I mean, we're, we assume the Trinity, right. we don't think the Trinity, and we rarely, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is rarely preached and taught publicly from the pulpit. And we really need to get back to doing that. That's so good. And so before we end this conversation, uh, what could you kind of say as almost like a, a, a teaser of what we'll, we'll, what we'll get into next week when we start to uh, dig into more of the, the medieval period? Well, we'll be looking at the way in which the patristic period ends with the rise of Islam, obviously a major topic mm-hmm. today, uh, the presence of Islam, and the loss of biblical literacy and how that led to a loss of the gospel. And um, yet God's faithfulness to his people and the uh, men and women who sought to preserve the gospel during the medieval period. Thanks so much, Michael, and I look forward to hearing from you next week. Thank you. Great to be with you. There you go, Dr. Michael Haken addressing the patristic period. Hey, in a couple of weeks, both We at In Doubt and Back to the Bible Canada, we're going to be at Breakforth Canada in Edmonton. If you're one of the literally thousands of people that will be there, please come chat with us. We're going to be there. I'm going to be there doing some live recording and it'll just be a lot of fun. Also, before we finish up, it's important to say that, you know, the entire ministry of In Doubt, which not only includes podcasting, but a whole online resource of blogs, film, Bible studies, things like that, it's actually funded by you by partners and listeners in Canada, the States, and beyond. Now, if In Doubt is a ministry you'd like to donate to, even if it's just 5 or $10, just head to indoubt.ca and click the Donate button. If you're one of our American listeners, do the same thing, but just be sure to click on the For U.S. Residents button. If you want to access any of our material online, head to indoubt.ca. Follow us and connect with us throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a question or comment or suggestion of someone that you'd like to hear from, uh, just email us at info at indoubt.ca. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we hear again from Dr. Michael Haken as he discusses what happens with the church in the medieval period. Have a good one. In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. For more podcasts, blogs, and videos, visit backtothebible.ca slash in doubt.